It is good to be together. Just a little bit ago, somebody came up to me and asked me, what are you preaching on today, Leo? And I said, Jesus. <laughs> they chuckled just like you. But that's the truth. Today we get to talk about who is Jesus. I'm going to say that a lot. And perhaps like me, when you think of the word Jesus, you think of a light-skinned dude with dark hair, kind of like the people in this picture in the back, reinforced by sadly mistaken pictures in the church in the Middle Ages. But who is Jesus? Maybe you think of a baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Maybe you think of a man on a cross. But who is he? Is he simply a symbol of love and tolerance? Someone who selflessly died as an example for us to follow? Who, who is Jesus? Maybe you know about the life of Jesus on earth, but was there something before that? Who was he before he came to earth, if there was something before that? Well, if you ask anybody on the street, they'll know a little bit about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? But their answer will vary greatly. Some will know a great deal. Others will know just his name. Some may just think he was a guy who lived a couple thousand years ago who's become the uh, leader of Christianity. And some of you maybe even today who were invited, maybe you dismiss him because he lived so long ago. Should we do this? Should we dismiss Jesus? Where's the best place to turn to look to see a comprehensive look for just who Jesus is? Well, the first four books of the New Testament lay out who Jesus is, the Gospels, right? And most of them start with an action-packed series of events where you're just blown away by this guy, Jesus, and you get introduced to him. But John's Gospel is a little different. He unfolds everything he wants to tell you in his book in the first chapter, and that's where we're turning today. And one of the things he tells us is that Jesus didn't just live a couple thousand years ago. He's far older than that. In fact, John perhaps gives us the clearest picture of who Jesus is out of the whole Bible. Now, it's not an exhaustive treatment of Jesus. We have to look at every single page, every single word, every single verse to see who Jesus is because it all relates to him. It all points to him. But this chapter is unique in that it speaks a great deal about who Jesus was prior to being born in a stable. For he's the only person whoever was before he was born. And he goes, it goes beyond just calling him a great teacher or maybe amazing healer or a faithful friend. What we find from this chapter in John 1 is the same thing that we see represented in the Apostles' Creed. We're in the middle of a series that's built around the Apostles' Creed, if you're new with us today. Uh, and we've heard about God the Father as Father and as Creator. And today... We'll be looking at the line that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Now, the Bibles are absolute authority. But I think what we'll find is that the creed has been confessed by Christians for so many years and said to be true because it so closely follows what John says in this first chapter of his book. What does this chapter say? Well, it tells us that who Jesus is demands our praise. Who Jesus is, we can't dismiss him. It demands our praise. 
And Jesus isn't just a man who died on a cross or a, a symbol of love, a good teacher or a religious figurehead, or even just another name for God. Jesus is the Father's only Son, and He is the Christ, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So we're going to look at who Jesus is this afternoon by looking at His identity in two ways. First, we'll look at Jesus is His only Son, and then we'll look at Jesus is the Christ, our Lord. So first, let's look at Jesus is His only Son. Now, Brother Bill just read a second ago in verse 1 from John 1, Jesus was called the Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word. It's kind of a weird thing to call somebody. It's almost like if I were to say, yeah, my brother-in-law Grant, he's the rock, right? Because he's just a strong dude. I lean on him when I'm in trial or struggling. By calling him the rock, I'm attributing something about him. John calls Jesus the Word Because Jesus is the revelation of God. You see, the way that we use our words reveals who we are, how we think, what our beliefs are, what's important to us. And so Jesus is the word of God in that he reveals reveals to us just what God is like. Jesus is the word because he's God's ultimate self-disclosure. And in verse 9, we see Jesus is called the true light. The life-giving presence of God breaking into a dark and evil world. And then in verse 14 we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. What kind of glory? Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here Jesus is called the Word again. But His glory is described as that of God's only Son. Now, hearing Jesus call God's only Son might make you feel some type of way. It might make you feel strange because we know that daughters and sons of God are anybody that trusts in Jesus, right? We're all sons and daughters. That's true. And even later we read that he has the authority to call, make us called children of God, right? But there's a sense where Jesus is the only Son of God, and here it is. He's the only one who by nature is the Son of God. See, the rest of us, we don't start out that way. We're adopted into the family of God. But Jesus is uniquely the eternally begotten Son of God by nature. There was never a time when He wasn't the Son of God. And in this verse, we see this only Son being distinguished from the Father. There is one Father. The one from whom all proceeds is planned and all things are willed. But John tells us there is also one son. Now it's true that John later calls everybody sons and daughters, but here he uses a special term reserved for a unique individual. It's monogenes in Greek, and literally it means one son. And check this, anywhere it's used in the Bible, it refers to a special intimate relationship between a kid and their parent. And every time that John uses it in his gospel, it only refers to Jesus' relationship with his Father. Jesus is specially his only Son. Jesus Christ is his only Son. And so earlier, we heard John call this Son of God the Word in verse 1, and he laid out some things about who the Son of God is. So read with me here in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and you can finish it. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so three things are said there. He was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So let's look at that. In the beginning, immediately you think of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And it actually matches exactly like the Jewish Greek Testament. The exact same language right there. The Jewish would have been reading, right? The Jewish person would have been reading there and said, oh, he's talking about creation. But they would have said, in the beginning was, wait, in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word? They would have thought, that's not how it goes. It's in the beginning was God. But John leaves no doubt. And he boldly declares by inserting the Word's name here that in the beginning was none other than the Son of God. He is pre-existent to creation. So back to our question, who is Jesus? He is the eternally pre-existent one, the eternal Son. Before beginnings, mind blown, He already was. Before there was time, Jesus built the clock. Before the date was set for Him to become a man, He was there. He predates dates. Jesus was before there was anything else. And the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And here you might think, of course He was with God if He was creating in the beginning. But this word with is a special one. Who was with God specifically implies a relationship between two people. It isn't as if the Son of God was in the beginning and the Son of God is just God. You see, the Son of God was in the beginning, but there was another person in the beginning with Him, the Father God. The eternal Son, you see, is being distinguished here from the Father. The eternal Son is not the Father. They were always together with each other in relationship. And they brought the world into existence by creating it together. And in the last two weeks, we've heard a lot about the Father God. Tim clarified for us that the Father has always been the Father to the Son. This Word, who is Jesus, the Son of God, has always had a Father. And the Father is not just Father-like. He doesn't just love like a Father. He is Father. And Jesus, the only Son of God, is the Father's Son. Not that the Father created Him, but that He uniquely relates to the Father as His only Son. Jesus was never fathered into existence, but that is the name by which He relates with the first person of the Trinity. And just as the Father eternally loves His Son as His only precious Son, so the Son has always loved the Father as His Father. And though this verse particularly references the Father and the Son, that with word, right? We also know from Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit was present at creation. The Spirit hovered over the waters. And so, since before time, an intimate and vibrant relationship between these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was thriving and was incomparably beautiful, harmonious, and full of splendor. And we get hints of this sometimes. 
Maybe you know somebody who's been married for like 50 years, and you watch them go about life, and they, they can complete each other's sentences, right? Before they even say, I want to do this, they know, and they start doing it. It's almost like they become one to the point where they have, I've got a couple people here married 50 years, right? Uh, but it's almost like they, they become one to the point where they share almost a will, a common will together. You see, that beauty is so much more magnified in the Trinity that we need to multiply it by infinity. For, the eter- for eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they've shared that will, acting in perfect harmony in their shared oneness. The Father predestines, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit empowers and completes the purpose of the Godhead. This type of unity and love and oneness is so breathtakingly beautiful and awesome, it blows our minds. Who is Jesus? The Son of God is a distinct person from the Father and the Spirit, and He's in a blissfully beautiful relationship with them. And Jesus thinks of Himself as the Son and not as the Father. The Son of God is not the Father, is not the Spirit. The Son of God knows the Father and the Spirit and loves them with a tenacity and unending devotion. And the Son of God has eternally been with the Father and the Spirit since before the beginning of the world. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Finally, we see a straightforward assertion of Jesus' deity. He's not just a God, a God. He's not just a demigod. He's not an angelic being created before the rest of the world. He is God just as the Father and Spirit are God. All of the attributes that you associate with God are true of Jesus. Everything that's true of God is true of His Son. And yet He is distinct in His person from the other members of the Trinity. They all share the same attributes, yet they have distinct self-consciousnesses. They are aware of themselves and each other. They all share the same character, yet they interact with each other and with their creation as distinct persons. And so we can pray to the Father, to the Son, or to the Spirit and interact with them distinctly while they share one essence. They are one in essence and being but different in person. And if your brain is blown right now, so is mine. And if you think you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you probably don't get it, right? And I just have to thank Tim for just throwing me into the deep end of the theological swimming pool, by the way, before I even passed my swim test, right? In a couple, a couple of weeks. But who is Jesus? Friends, think about it. He's, he can't be dismissed. He's no deranged lunatic or flawed man who lived a long time ago. Psalm 1830 says, as for God, his way is perfect. So the son of God is perfect in all of his ways, just like his father. He knew exactly what he was doing when he claimed to be God, and we cannot dismiss him. His ways are perfect. Who is Jesus? Brothers and sisters, he's more than a weak man who lived 
thousands of years ago, Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creators of the earth, the creator of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Jesus never grows tired or weary, just like Yahweh. You can't, I can't, we can't dismiss Jesus. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. He is love. He is just, unending, unchangeable, and simply too beautiful, too wonderful, and too awesome, and too marvelous to fathom. And he takes our breath away. Who he is makes us fall on our knees and cry, only Jesus! Because who Jesus is demands our praise. Amen? He is faithful. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Son of God is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And this Son, who has eternally been God with the Father and the Spirit, has acted as the revelation of God to us in the world. You see, God showed us what he's like when Jesus came. You see, we were like a bunch of people in the dark, just feeling around, trying to know who God is, only seeing faint shadows of who he is in our sin. And Jesus is God shining a light in, saying, this is who I am. Jesus is God shouting to us, look and see how beautiful I am. You see, no one has ever seen God the only God who is, at the Father's, who is at the Father's side. But Jesus has made him known. How do we know our Father? How do we know God? It's through the Word, the Son of God who has made him known. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Say this with me. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. You see, that's what the Apostles' Creed says, and that's what John 1 says. Jesus, as another creed says, is the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made of the same essence as the Father, and through Him all things were made. So we confess. And who Jesus is demands our praise. He's the only Son of God, eternally creating with the Father, revealing to us who God is, the revelation of God's identity. And who He is demands our praise. But that's not all there is to who Jesus is. He's always been the Son of God. But here's our second point. Jesus became the Christ, our Lord. So Jesus is his only son, and Jesus became the Christ, our Lord. So in the Apostles' Creed, we, we, we heard, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And John calls Jesus the Christ in verse 17. And we say Jesus Christ so many times that it's like you're introducing yourself, right? Hi, my name's Leo Paris. This is Jesus Christ. But that's not the deal, right? It's not his last name. Christ is a special word that means an anointed one. 
by calling Jesus the Christ, we are declaring him to be the anointed one from God. For the Israelite, that term was loaded. It meant Messiah, the deliverer. Isaiah 61 talks about this promised anointed one. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So by calling Jesus the Christ, we're calling him the promised Messiah, the specially chosen one by the Father who would deliver Israel from their enemies. John tells us that the Father's only eternal Son who created everything with the Father and was in a relationship with the Father, it was He, this same Son of God, who was chosen to be the Savior of creation. But how? How could the Son of God come and be the promised Messiah? That sounds so earthly, so human-like, so creaturely for the second person of the Trinity. In the extreme act of humility and condescending, condescension, Jesus became the anointed Lord. Look with me in verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God became a man. Another moment where we're going to blow our brains this, this afternoon. Not that He stopped being the Son of God, He was still fully God. Not that God used a human vessel to accomplish His will. He was now fully man too. So good illustrations work when they take something concrete and easy to understand and they relate it to something more abstract and difficult to understand. They shed light on it. But there's really no good illustration for the Trinity. Um, Lots of theologians have gotten in trouble trying to make analogies for the Trinity, so I'm going to be stupid and make one, but I will qualify it, I promise. Think about when a man conceives a child with a woman. In that moment, he becomes a father. He doesn't stop being a man, but he becomes what he was not while maintaining what he was. And so, too, Jesus became something that he had not been while not losing any aspect of his full divinity. Now, the analogy breaks down, promised I'd qualify it, because, I mean, the, the man's just getting a title change and responsibility change, right? Jesus is getting a nature added to his person. He's fully God and fully man, and so there's really nothing like this. His divine nature remains intact, but he added a human nature. And we we call the Son of God Jesus so often that we can think that this was always his name. But the truth is that the angel of Gabriel appeared to Joseph 
and revealed the name that the Father had planned, that Jesus, that, that, that the Son of God would forever be known of from that point. He became a man, and at that moment, he was known as Jesus. The Father's only Son became a man, and his name is Jesus. This is the mystery of all mysteries. This one's beyond comprehension. Think about it. God eternal was born a man. God's sustainer cried out for his mother's milk. God omniscient babbled like a baby. Imagine it. Possessing the fullness of power, he took a frail body. Knowing the path of the planet's orbits, he took a baby form, became fully man so that he didn't know day from night. Radiant, in blinding glory that would cause us all to lose our sight, he entered willingly into obscurity and humiliation, being born in a minuscule town, in a minuscule area, while only angels worshipped. Oh, what condescension! Oh, what love that God would take on a human nature in humility. This is meekness that is beyond comparison. How could the eternally begotten only Son do this? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did this for you and for me. His Father sent Him for you and for me. He came to heal us of our sickness by taking our place to die on the cross for our sins. And in Him we can find freedom from our self-inflicted oppression. We can find escape from the trap of sin. We were stuck, dead to rights, with zero hope before He came. But when He came, He came as the anointed Messiah. He became the Christ, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Amen. 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 He is worthy of that praise. Amen. We should clap because of who He is. The creed calls Jesus our Lord, too. He's the Christ. He's our Lord, meaning the one who rules over us as our king. He has authority over our lives. John doesn't explicitly state this in his, the ch first chapter of his book, but he spends the rest of his book fleshing out this theme. So let's trace this theme of lordship through the rest of his gospel. In just the next chapter, John 2, we see Jesus declaring his lordship over water at the wedding in Cana. He turns water into wine. We also see this when he walks on water in John 6. John 4, 5, and 9, Jesus is revealed as the Lord over sickness. When he heals the official's son, the invalid of 38 years, and the blind man since birth, Jesus declares himself as Lord over the fish and loaves. In John 6, when he feeds the 5,000, in John 5, Jesus declares himself Lord over judgment. And in John 11, he declares himself to be Lord over death in raising Lazarus and ultimately in his own personal resurrection. 
But the culminating revelation of Jesus' lordship in the Gospel of John comes through one of his doubting disciples. You guys know his name. Thomas, right. Doubting Thomas, the classic example in children's ministry, right? Don't doubt, right? Um, Doubting Thomas, he refused to believe that Jesus was Lord over his own resurrection, didn't he? You know, all these people are coming to him, he's risen, he's risen, he says, this is what he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, not just see it, i got to feel it, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Staring Jesus in the face a moment later, Thomas' statement is just like the many that saw his signs. All those ones I just recounted. What did John 1 say in verse 9 through 11? The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not receive him. Yet even in the midst of Thomas's doubt, Jesus appears and offers his nail-scarred hands to his doubting disciple. And Thomas's eyes are open. Thomas's heart is melted. His lips quiver as he gasps, My Lord and my God. Jesus declares his lordship even over unbelief. He reigns as king over all. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Only Jesus rules over water, sickness, food, judgment, death, and only Jesus has the authority, the lordship, to save us from our sins. He's the Lord of judgment, and as such, he's the one who we need to be saved from, but he's also the Lord of salvation. So as such, he's the only name by which we can be saved. John 1, 12 through 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the Lord of salvation. He possesses the right to give to us that we might be called children of God. So who is Jesus? Can we dismiss him? That would be the most foolish thing we could ever do. He's not just our Savior. He's our Lord. The only Son of the Father became a man, anointed by God as the Christ to save us from our sins and rule over us as our Lord. And so I must ask you, friends, maybe you've been dismissing every single point I've been making today. And you've just been saying, no, nah, I don't believe he's that. Jesus is real. He's been around for eternity. Jesus can be your Savior today. But he can't be your Savior until you admit that you need a Savior. You need to see what you need to be saved from to be saved. And friends, I'm there with you in this. It's easy to pretend like we don't need a Savior. We can rationalize away our flaws. 
We can pretend like we're not all that bad. We can compare ourselves to the person down the street. I just the other day saw a huge illustration of this. I was helping Joel uh, and Sam re- move into their house, and I get there. I'm ready to move the packages in to help them, and all of a sudden, there are these two guys who are supposed to be cleaning their carpets, and they just start pummeling each other in the middle of their yard, just throwing down. Like, and I'm like, what is happening here? You know, I've been here for 30 years, and I've never seen this happen. Joel shows up for one day, and here it is. They're like, what, what is going on? So I was like, Joel, did you do something? You know, but no. I talked to each one of them afterwards. We got them separated, thankfully. And guess what both of them said? I'm sorry about that, but you, you don't understand the other guy. They rationalize away. They were wiping the blood from their face. Saying, I didn't do anything. Maybe you're wiping the blood from your face right now. Pretending like it's just not true that you're a sinner. Friend, Drop the facade. There is a Savior who can take away your sin. He's the anointed Messiah. He came and left the glory of heaven to do it. He's reaching out to you right now. Accept Him as your Savior. Now, to accept Jesus as our Savior, we also have to accept Him as Lord. The truth is, you can't claim His gift of salvation And continue living exactly the way that you've been living before. See, receiving Jesus as Lord looks like giving up what he forbids. Secret looks, relationship you know you shouldn't be in, pervasive lying, cheating, maneuvering in friendships so that everybody thinks well of you for your own glory. We have to forsake that. Bow our knee before Jesus Christ, our Lord. Receiving Jesus also looks like not just running away from the things he forbids, but also running towards him and the things he calls us to do. Like right now, you're here, fellowshipping with the brothers. Looks like reading God's word and praying, spending uh, all of the time that we have to be with him. He's the Son of God. Remember who He is. He's the Son of God, awesome in majesty, who demands our praise. So receive Him as Lord and as Savior. You can be like Thomas right now. You can just have the doubts go away and and just say, my Lord, my God. Receive Him. To my friends who've trusted in Christ, I must ask, as I've asked myself all week, is Jesus the functional king of your life? You may, you've professed, you've bowed your knee to him, you've said, you are my Lord. But it's not long before we realize how hard it really is to do that. So even when you follow Jesus for a long time, it's easy to act like he isn't Lord over everything. Do you have parts of your life that you're thinking of as your domain? And others that are Jesus's. Jesus calls us more to be kind of like a feudal system where you had one king who reigned over this whole domain and you had a bunch of peasants working fields that weren't theirs, raising children to be in the king's army to march out and win more land. Jesus is the king. He owns it all. We're just stewards, not many lords. 
So maybe right now the Lord's putting something on your heart as something you've been just functioning as your own king in. Maybe it's a reputation. Maybe it's your children been struggling and, and they haven't been professing faith and you're just you're trying to control. Maybe it's your home's beauty or your status in the neighborhood or at school. Maybe it's your productivity, the respect that you receive at work. What we need to do is if, if you feel that right now, just right now, before even a moment passes, just in your brain, just confess that to the Lord and commit to telling somebody about that area you're struggling as acting kind of like your own king. You're saying, I need to give this to Jesus. I need to let him be the Lord over my life functionally, even as I profess. Here's another question for us to think about in application. Do we praise Jesus for who he is? Have we forgotten that he's the son of God? I mean, you maybe knew it on a test, but were you thinking about it? Was it, was it driving the way you're living? So whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or a day, it's a struggle to praise Jesus for who he is. John Newton's one of the most amazing letter writers I've ever read. And he, uh, in, in one of his letters, said this. He said, if I may speak my own experience, I find that to keep my eye simply upon Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. I, I can agree with that. The hardest part about being a Christian is keeping Christ right in the, 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 the view of your life. Never allowing your eyes to drift, but looking to Jesus, the founder and perfection, perfecter of our faith. We all need to remember to reorient our lives around praising Jesus. We're praising Him for who He is. So here's a couple ways that might look. Praising Him in trial. Maybe there's been something that you've been desiring for a long time. And you just, it's just a struggle. We can praise Him in the midst of that by keeping our eyes on the fact that we've received the Son of God who became the anointed Christ, our Lord. Missy and I have walked through years of, of praying for children, more children. And in those moments, it can either be a cause for depreciating my worship or a, a cause for redirecting my eyes to my Savior so that I can see that I've already been given the most amazing thing in the world. And I've already not been given what I deserve. We can praise Him in the trial. We can praise Him in busyness. Maybe your life's just crazy right now. Jesus is the first thing on our calendar, and He's the only immovable appointment. We make time for what we praise. So are you fitting Jesus in what, are you fitting Jesus in when you get a chance to, to, to meet with Him? Jesus demands our praise even in the busyness, and that means giving him primacy in our schedule. You praise him in recognition. Maybe you're like me, and you're one of those people that really struggles with receiving encouragement because you feel like your heart just gets like caught up in it, and you're kind of scared. You're like, ah, oh, they're encouraging me. I'm going to get proud. Well, even in that moment, think about how keeping your eyes on Jesus changes that moment. Someone comes up and says, thank you so much for preaching today. Instead of it being like, oh, yeah, I did that, didn't I? It becomes a, look what Jesus did today, right? It doesn't become about you. It becomes about Jesus if we keep our eyes fixed on him. Suddenly in blessing, we don't have to be ashamed. Suddenly in times of, 
of just wonderful blessing, like the birth of a child that Collins has celebrated the other day, becomes a moment of just, look what Jesus has done. Friends, think of who we have in Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Him changes everything. I, I had a rough week at work last week, I'll be honest. I was dealing with behavioral problems in my classroom. I teach full-time, for those of you who don't know. And you know what? how refreshing it was to look at Jesus in this text over and over and over again? It changed everything. My students didn't change. But my contentment, my joy, and my love for my Savior grew this week. And the Lord will do the same for you should you fix your eyes on Him today. This Jesus is the omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, eternal, immeasurable One. He's the essence of God's love, justice, righteousness, holiness, and goodness. He is the revelation of who God is. And this is God's promise to us as we leave today. This is what will happen should we fix our eyes on Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's what happens when you praise Jesus in whatever situation you're facing, you become like him. What a privilege. The son of God became a man and we get to be like him by just focusing on who he is because who he is demands something from us. Who he is demands our praise. And think about the type of Lord that Jesus is. He is an unstoppable king. He's an almighty lion, a tenacious, conquering Lord. And you're under His protection this week. You're under the protection of the Son of God, who, is Je who Jesus is, demands our praise. We get to know Him. We get to be saved by the Christ. We get to know our Father through His only Son. And we get to worship this Savior in all circumstances. I believe... Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Amen? Amen. I'd like to invite the, uh, the band to come back up, and Tim's going to lead us through communion, uh, or Alex is. Let me pray for us. Jesus, if there's anything changed in our hearts today, it's because You did it. You, you, you and the Father and the Spirit, You've sent Yourself to us, and You've changed us. So, Lord, I pray even as we take communion that there will be a sealing that takes place of conviction to grow. Lord, that, that, that even as, as the elements are taken, Lord, there will be some that profess you as their Savior and Lord. Would you do that now? In Jesus' name, amen.